This is episode 192 of That Shakespeare Life. Bring our podcast into your classroom with access to our video streaming library, printable worksheets, lesson plans, and activities that work like science labs for Shakespeare history. Unlock all these benefits when you become a member here at That Shakespeare Life, where you can cook, play, and create your way through the life of William Shakespeare. Sign up today at castycash.com slash member and stay tuned after the episode for even more details. Hi, I'm Valerie Wayne, the art and editor of Cymbeline and a professor emerita at the University of Hawaii at Manoa. Another great method for studying the life of William Shakespeare includes listening to this. It's That Shakespeare Life with Cassidy Cash. Historically, the term was rather vague. By the time we come to Shakespeare's time, the term carrot was out there pretty well and uh, fairly well defined. Although even today, there are some white carrots that people confuse with parsnips. And so there could have been that confusion in that era as well. Welcome to That Shakespeare Life with Cassidy Cash. Cassidy believes that if you desire to successfully learn or perform Shakespeare's plays, then understanding the real life and history of William Shakespeare himself is a must. That Shakespeare Life is the podcast that helps you go beyond the curtain of some of Shakespeare's most iconic works and explore the world of early modern England as Shakespeare would have lived it, learning from the writers, historians, and performers who know it best. And now, here's Cassidy. Wild carrots are indigenous to Europe and known as Queen Anne's Lace, as well as Devil's Plague and Fool's Parsley. This wild carrot variety was known primarily for its use as an herb and in medicinal recipes. The formal cultivated carrot arrived in England by the 15th century, and right up until Shakespeare's lifetime, carrots were mostly purple. According to the Wild Carrot Museum in the UK, orange-colored carrots arrived in Europe right in the middle of Shakespeare's lifetime, making the orange carrot a new thing for Shakespeare. In fact, one reason orange carrots are thought to have caught on so quickly in popularity is because cooking the orange carrots didn't stain the pots nearly as bad as cooking with purple ones. The new carrot took a firm hold in the cultivation of this root vegetable, and by the time British settlers arrived in North America, the carrots they brought with them were primarily orange and sometimes white. When it comes to finding carrots in Shakespeare's plays, the word carrot isn't in there. We can only partially fault Shakespeare for not giving us a nice reference to carrots for this week's episode because the word carrot was just getting started in the English language. Carrot arrived in English around 1530, but in popular vernacular, there was a great deal of overlap between the names of root vegetables. Carrots, parsnips, and parsley were often referred to interchangeably by the same names. In fact, in Old English, there's not a good way to distinguish between carrots and parsnips since they were both both called moru, coming from the fittingly root word for edible root. Our guest this week is an expert in historical horticulture, and he joins us today to help us understand what Shakespeare would have called this orange root vegetable, whether or not it was a regular at the dinner table, and to explain the history of what kind of carrots Shakespeare would have enjoyed. 
Dr. Phil Simon is a USDA Agricultural Research Service research geneticist and professor of horticulture at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. His research in vegetable genetics and breeding has focused on carrot improvement, targeting improved flavor and nutritional quality, nematode disease, and abiotic stress resilience. He led the development of widely used carrot germplasm with high carotene content, sweet, mild flavor, purple color, and root knot nematode resistance. To complement his breeding effort. He has trained 35 graduate students, developed breeding tools, including the sequencing of the carrot genome, and he has collected carrot, allium, and other vegetable germplasm in 10 collecting expeditions in a dozen countries. Hello, Phil. Welcome to the show. Hi. Shakespeare doesn't mention carrots or parsnips by name in his works, but his contemporaries do. Sir Thomas More talks about, quote, what's a sorry parsnip to a good heart, end quote, while fellow playwright Fletcher wrote of, quote, buttered parsnips in his works. Shakespeare does provide one reference to parsley in his plays when Viandello says in Taming of the Shrew that, quote, she went to the garden for parsley to stop a rabbit, end quote. Phil, would all of these vegetables, carrots, parsley, and parsnips, have been interchangeable terms of what they were called, would Shakespeare have called a carrot a carrot by name during his lifetime? Great question, because historically the term was rather vague. By the time we come to Shakespeare's time, the term carrot was out there pretty well and uh, fairly well defined. Although even today, there are some white carrots that people confuse with parsnips. And so there could have been that confusion in that era as well. Biandello's reference to parsley for stuffing a rabbit suggests that parsley was used to cook with, but were carrots also seen as people food for Shakespeare's lifetime, as opposed to something you might feed to a horse, for example? Yeah, well, uh, they were generally poor people's food. And so in that sense, they were often grown more for fodder for feeding animals. But having said that, they definitely were consumed by humans like uh, the other uh, vegetables that you mentioned in that parsley as well, those would have been available in Shakespeare's time. What were some popular carrot-based dishes or recipes for Shakespeare's lifetime? What kind of things did they cook with these carrots? Yeah, I, that's a great question too. And in fact, there's a, an English author, uh, Alicia Amherst, that wrote a cookbook that refers to carrots, although I've never seen the original. It's only referred to, uh, I'll mention two, two people's names as we go along here. One is Otto Banga, who is a Dutch researcher of the 1950s that wrote the, really the history of carrots. And more recently, the John Stelarzik at the Carrot Museum has a very good uh, coverage of carrot history. And in both of those uh, references, there's, there is a reference to Alicia Amherst, who was uh, talking about carrots being used in cooking. Now, the Exact recipes. I don't know exactly what the recipes Alicia Amherst mentioned, but recipes that were popular at the time included a dish that uh, for purple carrots. This was more in in France, uh, but it could have very well have been in England as well, where carrots were parboiled and then uh, sliced and um, buttered and salt, pepper, and sometimes vinegar, and then uh, cooked, sort of fried lightly or sometimes eaten as a salad, what it was referred to as a salad, without the additional cooking. Apparently, the partial cooking was to soften them a bit. That's what seems to be the recurring use of carrots, other than to serve as an additive to things like when you're cooking meat or sometimes cooking potatoes for a long time, put some carrots in the mix with, the, with those uh, dishes. 
Now, you've mentioned white carrots as well as purple carrots. And I wonder, what would the primary color of carrots have been for Shakespeare's lifetime? Did he have orange carrots like we think of today? He could have. There's no definitive evidence. But he was in the right place in the right time to have purple, orange, yellow, and white carrots. Although pretty early for white carrots, which are actually a bit more recent, Purple carrots had been historically quite widely used uh, back to even the 1300s in uh, France and Germany and the, the Netherlands and uh, 1300s, 1400s. And carrots certainly were in England and, and the early carrots of the 1300s preceding uh, Shakespeare time would likely be and yellow. There is mention of purple carrots in not books on vegetables so much as herbalist books by a couple of authors named Gerard, Parkinson, and Miller. They do mention purple carrots, but more in a herbalist context for medicinal type use. Exactly how they were used is not so clear, but they do mention purple carrots in works from the 1500s and 1600s in England. There's mention of yellow carrots uh, by a, a researcher, by a, an author named Gardner in uh, 1603 in England. And so he does not mention, he, he was more of a horticulturist, so growing carrots more as a vegetable as, a fruit, as opposed to an herb. And so uh, based on that, uh, we know there were yellow carrots in, in Shakespeare's England. 1603 was Gardner's publication, so it had to be around before then. Interestingly, there had been a Dutch settlement in Sandwich, England in the late 1500s, and they had a cultivar of orange carrots called Sandwich, uh, that's where they developed it. And so these carrots could have been brought to, to, to Stratford on Avon during the time that Shakespeare was alive. So he could have had purple, yellow, and orange carrots, and maybe white. So if carrots were originally purple, what motivated the cultivation of orange carrots? Was there some kind of political reason for developing an orange carrot or were people just interested to see what kind of colors they could make? That's an interesting question, too. Uh, The bigger answer is the one you gave at the end. It's just one of the range of colors that carrots naturally occur in, naturally in the context of agriculture, if you're considering agriculture to be a natural process, which it isn't really because it's all contrived by humans, but in in agriculture, all those colors that you mentioned have occurred in carrots. And like in the same way that something like uh, russeted or red potato varieties have been derived from plain old brown potatoes, these different colors show up in all vegetables. There's similar stories in apples, for instance, where some different colors of apples show up on a tree. And, uh, you know, the, the old uh, adage that like begets like, if you see a, an orange carrot showing up in your yellow carrot patch and you take that carrot and you produce seed on it, by golly, the next year you're likely to have more orange carrots. If you take the yellow carrots from that patch, you're likely to and get seed from them, they're likely to be yellow. And so that's the process that domestication has used to give us the crops that we have today. The exact story for carrots is not particularly clear. Orange is an interesting color, not so much for England, but for Holland, because the House of Orange is the royal family, and the royal family was in some political turmoil over times. And so orange was sometimes forbidden because of the support of the House of Orange 
often today, if you look at the Olympic Dutch uh, competitors, they're usually wearing orange because it does have a political connection to it. In England, I don't think so. I've read that there are something called a wild carrot that's native to England. And I wonder if you could share with us what the difference is between a wild carrot that grew on its own in England and the purple, white, and orange carrots that were being cultivated by these horticulturists you've mentioned. Right. So wild carrots quite certainly was in England in Shakespeare's time. So, But to back up, where the carrots originally come from, the answer to that is probably Central Asia. Now, what I'm talking about is the process where, for instance, for humans, there's this historical evidence that the earliest humans were in the Olduvai Gorge of Africa, and then we spread all over the world. There is evidence, very good evidence, that uh, crops like beans and corn and potatoes started in Central and South America and then were dispersed all over the world. In the case of carrots, the best evidence is that the very first thing, the first carrots that occurred were wild carrots, probably many, many, many thousands of years ago. And then they spread as a weed because wild carrots are a very effective weed. They spread readily. They get along very well with humans because they catch, their seeds have spines on them and they'll catch on your cuffs of your pants or your stock, stockings. Wild carrots probably came to the U.S., with European settlers, because there probably were no wild carrots in the U.S. before the Europeans came here, uh, based on the genetic fingerprint of wild carrots. So anyway, so wild carrots started probably in Central Asia, that being Afghanistan, Pakistan, Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, and then spread over the world like wild plants do. And even five thousand, four to five thousand years ago, wild carrots were definitely found. In Switzerland, so that's quite a ways from Central Asia, we can posit that carrots quite certainly were in England by Shakespeare's time. Did they taste different or or cook up different than than the purple carrots that people were using in those herbalist books? Yeah, many of your audience will know wild carrots as Queen Anne's lace if you're in the right part of the world. I'm not sure where you're broadcasting from, but in the northeastern, most of the northern half of the U.S., wild carrots, especially on the eastern side, are widespread. They're all, all over the place as Queen Anne's lace. When you pull up a wild carrot, you say, I smell a carrot, <laughs> because you break off the roots of that wild, white-rooted, wild relative of carrots. It's the progenitor of carrots. And when you break those roots off and pull the plant up, uh, it smells like a carrot. Are they edible? They are before they start flowering. That's the same story for cultivated carrots. Cultivated carrots can flower too. If they do, they'll send up stock. At that point, they become pretty much inedible because they get a very woody core to them. Same thing happens with wild carrots. It just happens earlier in their life cycle. So you have to get out there early in spring to catch those wild carrots and dig them up before they start flowering. They are edible. For Shakespeare's lifetime, were carrots considered an important crop for for England? Were they available commercially, or were these the kind of things that each family would grow themselves? Most vegetables were grown primarily by the women of each family in that era. And so we can thank the women of history to probably have domesticated carrots for us, because that's the story around the world that vegetables are more often grown by women. That's another story. Carrots, yes, probably grown by women. Local 
locally, probably not a major crop in England at that time. Apparently, it hadn't caught on too much as much as it had in the continental European area, but certainly it was in that area. But at the same time, there were cultivated carrots that were brought in from both probably Sandwich, England, but also across the English Channel on some because carrots ship fairly well compared to food crops, for instance. So. Now, I know some fruits and vegetables, like tomatoes, for example, held a mistaken belief to be poisonous to people. Were carrots under any kind of similar superstition or certain yeah. belief about carrots? Carrots themselves, not. But the family of, of plants that carrots is in the APAC have crops like cow parsnip, which is a wild relative of carrot that the flowering plant looks like carrots. And it's very poisonous. And in fact, in the book by John Gerard in the 1600s, a more of a you know, herbalist book, he talks about, he has a chapter on stinking and deadly carrots, referring to the wild relatives of carrots, which are quite toxic. Carrots themselves are not known to be very toxic at all. Now, before we got started here today, Phil shared with me that despite the word carrot not showing up in Shakespeare's plays, Phil, do you have new information for us that suggests Shakespeare may have mentioned carrots in his plays after all? Maybe so. And I have to give full credit to John Stelarczyk, who has created the Carrot Museum in England, who has a great website. In The Merry Wives of Windsor, there is a, a line where it says, remember, William, says Sir Hugh Evans in the Mary Wise of Windsor, focative, F-O-C-A-T-I-V-E, is carrot, C-A-R-E-T. And that, replies Mrs. Quickly, is a good root. So there's some, apparently some uh, phallic reference here (laughs) as part of this. And uh, the term carrot, is actually the Latin word for missing, and that may be the real context that the word is brought up. But perhaps Mrs. Quickly, when referring to it as a good root and taking a play on words, might be referring to the use of carrot in both of those contexts. So, But it's not the word carrot, it's C-A-R-E-T. Okay, so when we go looking for it in some of our 16th century documents, we'll have another spelling variation to consider. Thank you so much. Well, I know we would love to explore this topic further and the history of carrots is much to learn and to know. So what are some of your favorite books or resources you can recommend we use to learn more? Yeah, I mentioned the two already that are in terms of carrots, the very best texts are uh, some works by Otto Banga in the 1950s and early 60s. There's a book called The Carotene Carrot, or it's got a longer title, but that's the body, the main part of it where Banga describes his take on the history of carrots. And he also has a couple of very authoritative articles from the 1950s describing his take on the, on the historical <laughs> of carrots. And uh, in addition to that, uh, I mentioned uh, the John Stelarczyk and the Carrot Museum. They go to that Carrot Museum website that has loads of carrot information on it including more recipes that are more modern and other stories about carrots. So those are some really good references on carrots. Thank you so much for mentioning those. We actually spoke with John at the Carrot Museum to to put together some parts of this episode. So we'll definitely be linking to uh, his website. Thank you for recommending these. Y'all can check out the show notes for today's episode to find links to these as well as to Phil Simon's work. So 
stay tuned at the end to find the link for that. Now, Phil, we ask everyone this next question here at That Shakespeare Life, and that's, what's the one book you would take with you on a deserted island? My friends in England tell me I'm supposed to allow you the complete works of Shakespeare and a copy of the Bible, so your choice would be in addition to those. Well, you know, a book that that really fascinates me, I don't reread books very often, but the book entitled The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat by Oliver Sacks, to me, is a fascinating book. I won't go into details. It's a, it's more of a book on variations on what we consider normal human behavior, just as part of that natural variation amongst us humans. I think that you would be well set up on your deserted island with that selection, for sure. So what's next for you? What are you working on now that you're excited about? Well, my career, we focused a lot on not only developing carrots improved for growers so that they have things like disease resistance and better productivity. For in the case of carrots, better appearance, that's a big part of selling carrots is how they look. But in addition to that, career-wise, I put a lot of effort in the, uh, the nutritional quality of carrots. It's orange, and so it's, we've, what we've done is, uh, in the last decades, improved the nutritional quality of carrots. If you bought a carrot in the U.S. in 1970, it had only about two-thirds the nutritional quality of carrots in the U.S. today thanks to the breeding that I'm a part of, uh, it's not just me, for improvement. What we're focusing around right now is uh, looking at flavor and texture. People like juicy carrots, but juicy carrots present some problems for growers. So we're trying to figure out how to develop a juicy, tender carrot that bursts in your mouth, but when the grower is handling it, it doesn't burst when she's packing them on the packing shed. But people like juicy carrots, so that's kind of a, a new focus on things. Uh, flavor is a big focus as well, because if you got nutritious, nutritionally important carrots that people don't want to eat, we're not going to go anywhere. Also, carrots are a big deal in developing in Asia. And as time goes along, the challenges of climate change are probably going to hit Asia stronger and earlier than here, although we've got plenty of them in, in the U.S. already. But so we're doing a lot of work in Asia looking at the developing carrots that are uh, better, more tolerant to heat and drought and salinity. And so that's some new areas that we're working on. Well, I know my children will be very excited to hear about your work, carrots being one of their favorite foods. So thank you so much, Phil Simon, for your work and helping keep carrots wonderful for all of us and for being here today to share with us the history of carrots in Shakespeare's lifetime. This has been a really fun conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity. Don't forget to stop by our show notes for today's episode to find bonus history like pictures of wild carrots, links to Phil Simon's work, as well as all the resources recommended in today's episode. In honor of the Christmas holiday this week, we have a special Christmas gift for you. We have packaged up a carrot recipe available in the show notes. You can download a printable cooking card for the carrot recipe Phil mentions in today's episode. Download that from the show notes, and I hope it helps you bring a little Shakespeare history to your Christmas table. Find all these things at castycash.com slash episode 192. That's castycash.com slash EP 192. If you enjoy our show, be sure to leave us a comment and a rating on your favorite podcast platform and share the show with someone you think might enjoy learning something new about Shakespeare. For exclusive podcast episodes, bonus content, and a library of printable resources like lesson plans, worksheets, and even some Shakespeare history courses that coordinate with our show, be sure to explore our members area at castycash.com slash member. That's castycash.com slash member.
That's it for this week. Thank you for listening. From all of us here at That Shakespeare Life, we wish you a Merry Christmas and all the best of the holiday season. Thank you for spending a few minutes of your holidays with us today. I'm Cassidy Cash, and I hope you learn something new about the Bard. I'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to That Shakespeare Life. As always, the best conversations happen after the episode over at CassidyCash.com. Become a part of a vibrant Shakespeare conversation by adding your voice over at the website. Until next time, remember, when you want to know William Shakespeare, you have to go behind the curtain and into That Shakespeare Life.